Hi, and thanks for downloading. This is the Ancient History Hound podcast, and you can find me on Twitter, at AncientBlogger, and on my website, AncientBlogger.com. I'd normally leave referring to my website until the end of the podcast, but I do so now because I've created a post on it called Eclipses in Antiquity, and this will have a number of resources relating to this episode. The main rationale was because trying to describe how eclipses work is difficult at best. It's much easier to understand them from some of the sources and diagrams I've included in the post. I'll also put other resources on there, such as some of the papers I've cited and some other bits and bobs. I also want to give a big thanks to the Astronomy subreddit forum who helped answer some questions. Thanks again, guys. I asked some pretty basic ones and they were very friendly and very helpful. Before I go further, there are a couple of really, really important things I need to explain about eclipses and in the context of this podcast. The first is that they can give you a lot of information. This is largely due to the fact that eclipses follow mathematical rules, and as such, eclipses can be predicted. More importantly, for the purposes of this podcast, they can be retrospectively catalogued. On the NASA Eclipse page, which I'll link to in my post, thousands of years worth of eclipses which have already occurred are catalogued. Some have been assigned to events of historical importance and I've included them. These records ascribe the year, month, day and even time of the eclipse in question. And for any fan of ancient history, this is almost too much detail. I get a nosebleed when dealing with a date range shorter than a quarter of a century. Secondly, these records also give a location Depending on the type of eclipse and the historical account, this can be really quite precise. The caveat for all of this is the perils of playing matchmaker. Finding an eclipse which matches an account in antiquity is all well and good, but sometimes it doesn't quite match, or there's simply no record. Other times the account is ambiguous enough where we might have more than one option as the eclipse. As mentioned, I owe much of this podcast to the NASA catalogue, but I'd be negligent if I gave credit for all the eclipse sciencey stuff to the modern age. In reality, the civilizations of the BC era were charting and recording movements of the planets and eclipses. They did this for a variety of reasons, often couched within the concept of omens and religion. But don't think this was naive peoples just pointing up at the sky. There was an understanding of how these events occurred and how they could be predicted. For the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to be picking up with the Mesopotamian cultures. But it's important to know that other peoples in other parts of the world, for example, China and India, were also recording and making astronomical records. Mesopotamia is one of those words which historians use to refer to any number of peoples, and that's because it's more a geographical definition than anything else. Mesopotamia was the area between the Tigris River and the Euphrates River, If we map that to the atlas of the modern day, it would include Iraq, Kuwait, Syria and Turkey. This area also hosted empires which rose and fell sporadically. So you had the Akkadians, Sumerians, Assyrians and Babylonians being ones you've probably heard of. 
Each civilization kept records, developed ideas, and passed the knowledge on. It was a melting pot of ideas, which often makes it difficult to assign anyone as the originator. It's probably best to think of each culture building on those which came before it, and those which sat alongside it. Much of the astronomy in this region was built on mathematical principles. Counting was done using a sexagesimal system, that is to say, units of 60. So if you wonder why we have 60 seconds in a minute, and 60 minutes in an hour, it's because of the Sumerians and later Babylonians. This was used to apply measurements to celestial bodies and make calculations. And one of the most important of these in the context of the eclipse was the Saros cycle. This was a period of time which was used to calculate eclipses. It's not known exactly when it came into use, but the consensus is that it was in place by the 6th century BCE. With all of this said, I can now move to the first eclipses I want to discuss. And these relate not to an astronomical record on a cuneiform tablet found in Mesopotamia, but to good old Homer and poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Homer's account of the siege of Troy and the travels of Odysseus loom large for any ancient historian. It's labyrinthian. The more you read and think you know, the more a previously unknown detail scurries across the page. And something I never paid much attention to was the description of the sky. OK, we all know about the rosiness of Dawn's fingers, but really it stops there. Not so for a group of scholars who worked on a paper in Mediterranean Archaeology and Archaeometry, specifically Volume 14, 2014, and I'll put a link to this in the post. The team argued that there was a specific reference to an eclipse in the Iliad. This eclipse occurred on the day that Patroclus fought in the armour of Achilles and was subsequently killed by Hector, which, if you know the Iliad, is a bit of a pivotal point. The idea that this could ever be the case, it's ambitious to say the least, as it takes a work based on a myth written some 500 years after it and replaces it into the concrete realm of reality. It would be the equivalent of someone in the year 2500 reading a fictional account of Henry VIII written today and using something in it to argue that it was raining on the day Anne Boleyn was executed. It's an obvious criticism, but let's let's leave that be for a moment because the paper and the arguments within it are as tantalising as they are cogent. For all of you not wholly familiar with the Iliad, Book 16 features Patroclus, Achilles' bestie and most likely one with benefits, taking the armour of Achilles and wearing it on the battlefield, because Achilles was still refusing to fight. As you can probably imagine, the Greeks were in a dire place. The first mention of anything unusual occurred at the death of Sarpedon. Immediately after he meets his end, Homer described Zeus throwing destructive darkness over the mighty combat. Homer gave clues as to the time of the day, the battle contested into late afternoon, which is inferred from Homer's comment that the sun had passed unyoking time. It's at this point that Patroclus fell at the hands of Hector, and his body is contested by the Trojans and the Greeks. Homer described the paucity of light, and I quote, Neither sun nor moon, since all was darkened in the battle cloud. And this was even noted by Ajax, who complained to Zeus to give us back our sight, destroy us in daylight. For the scholars, this was more than a metaphor. Homer had given a description of a partial eclipse which had occurred in the afternoon, 
starting just after noon with the death of Sarpedon and increasing in nature to cover the time of Patroclus' death and just after. The challenge was to allocate this description and find an eclipse to match it. That is, a partial eclipse which was visible in the area of Troy and happened in later afternoon in the period associated with the Trojan War. Using astronomical software, a partial eclipse was found which started on the 6th of June 1218 BCE at 10 past 2 local time. As I've said, it was a partial eclipse, but at its peak it covered 75% of the sun. The response to this that you were probably having, and I did too, was, well, that's, that's just lucky, it's just a coincidence. But there are other events which link into this specific eclipse. For example, take the appearance of Venus three days after the death of Patroclus. It's another passing detail mentioned by Homer in Book 23, where the star precedes dawn. And this lines up with what the team discovered using star mapping software. On that day, Venus rose at 3.12am, when sunrise was 4.48am. For there to be a solar eclipse, it needed to be preceded by a new moon phase. And these are typically moonless nights, where without the moon's light, it's incredibly dark. And guess what? The night before Patroclus' death is the famous raid of Diomedes and Odysseus, and there are numerous comments to how dark it was. On a side note, this helps settle a bit of a problem I've always had with that raid, because Odysseus wore that boar tusk helmet, and I've always thought, why would you wear something which had white teeth at night if you wanted to remain unseen? Well, it turns out that there was no moonlight to reflect from this. As ever, it's Odysseus 1, nil, nil. What the paper does give is a solid case for an eclipse to be matched to one described in the Iliad. It doesn't answer how these near-forensic details managed to remain in an oral tale, which was retold 500 years later, but it's very interesting nonetheless. The same team also discovered another reference to an eclipse by Homer. This time, it's in the Odyssey. In Book 20, Odysseus has arrived home to Ithaca and is planning his revenge on the suitors who are feasting in his hall. A prophet called Theoclymenus warned them of their impending doom and added that the sun is blotted out from heaven and a foul mist has crept upon the world. The suitors take no heed of this and mock him for a starter, it's an odd thing to say when indoors. How did the prophet know exactly what was going on outside? To this point, the paper argues that the prophet has noticed the beginning of the eclipse, which is easily missed and not apparent to anyone inside, hence the suitor's response to him. As with the eclipse in the Iliad, the position of Venus is referenced, this time five days before the eclipse, and as Odysseus is sailing to Ithaca. Much like the moonless sky before the eclipse in the Iliad, Homer again mentions this. A couple of constellations are also referenced. It won't surprise you that there was an eclipse which combined all of these features and was visible on the Greek islands in the afternoon when the killing of the suitors began. The eclipse occurred on the 30th of October 1207 BCE and it was a partial solar eclipse. Extra listening points are available here if you notice the dates of the respective eclipses. More specifically, the time between them. According to the myth, it took Odysseus 10 years to return home, and these eclipses occurred 10 years apart, or thereabouts. I suppose this is predicated on the idea 
that Troy fell shortly after Patroclus died, and that whole bit about any of this being real. But I don't want to sound facetious. There's a lot of strong work which has gone into both these papers, and, well, you just never know. The next eclipse sits in stark contrast. It's refreshingly clear of any hypotheticals or speculation. In many ways, it's the opposite of the Homeric eclipses, because this was used to date not just one event, but many, many more. On the early morning of 15th of June, 763 BCE, a solar eclipse was witnessed and recorded at Assur in the kingdom of Assyria. This is modern-day Asher in northern Iraq. It lasted for five minutes and didn't by itself have any great effect. And by that, I mean it was merely recorded. But it's the recording of it that is the big thing. Assyrians kept a chronology of their times called the Lumu List from the 10th to 7th century BCE. It's otherwise known as the eponym list because Elimu was an official who gave their name to the year. And this made me think of the eponymous Archon, who was an official in ancient Athens who also gave their name to the year. But anyway, back to the record in question. The record is brief, and I'll quote it. Year of Ur Sigali of Gazana, revolt in the city of Assur. In the month Simanu, an eclipse of the sun took place. It's a brief and fleeting mention. But as I've covered at the beginning, what we here have here is a reference to an eclipse and a location. Linking the eclipse of the 15th of June wasn't done with modern software. It was argued as a candidate by Henry Rawlinson in 1867, and since then other supporting data has placed this as the eclipse mentioned in the Limu. As you may have already worked out, what this did was given a definitive date you could attach to a record in a chronological list, and the importance of this was massive. The Limu in question, Bursagali, was the Limu in the 10th year of the Assyrian king Assur-dan III, and thus a date for Assur-dan's reign could be worked out. The implications were huge as it allowed dates to be allotted to the other Assyrian kings, and allowed historians to build an entire chronology of the Assyrians. But this wasn't just all about Assyrians. If you have a record of an Assyrian king involving himself with a king, or, or an event elsewhere, then you can date that event or other king. It was a sort of osmotic chronology, and a much welcome one at that. All this chat about Assyrians allows me to segue into an eclipse involving an Assyrian king, and one of the most curious instances of human sacrifice you'll ever come across. Bit of a spoiler. If you've listened to my part one podcast on human sacrifice, then you might remember it. But even if you have, I'm sure you won't mind me going over it again. But before I get into it, here's a word from a fellow podcaster. Hi, guys. Steve here from Spartan History Podcast, interrupting your regular transmission. Once you're finished here, come over and check out my show. At Spartan History Podcast, I take an in-depth look into the Spartan people, from their beginnings in the Bronze and Mythic Age and carry the story right through to their military dominance of classical Greece and beyond. I set this against a broader backdrop of Hellenic history with detailed analysis of the big players and parochial legends. New episodes drop on the first Sunday of every month and can be found wherever you catch your pods. Head over to SpartanHistoryPodcast.com if you're interested in more info on the show. Take good care and speak soon. Over to you, AB. Thanks for that. It's a very good podcast. And coincidentally, I'll be discussing Spartans later. But anyway, back to the Assyrians. The king in question was Esarhaddon, 
who reigned from 681 to 669 BCE. His reign was marked with a few instances of eclipses and these were very closely scrutinised. Eclipses were important which could mean a range of outcomes depending on certain criteria. For example, where in the sky the eclipse happened, whether it was a partial or total eclipse, and even whether other celestial bodies were observable. The outcomes varied from indicating a potential invasion to meaning the death of a minor noble. But there was always one outcome an Assyrian king feared, the one which meant he was in the crosshairs of an evil omen. We have a surviving instance of this documented. It began with a letter to the king from the king's chief exorcist. Yeah, you heard that correctly. He warned about a lunar eclipse which has now been dated to the 27th of December 671 BCE. The response to this was invoking the substitute king ritual and normally this happened after the eclipse but this time S.R. Haddon had the luxury of a few days to prepare for it. The name substitute king ritual, it's, it's hardly cryptic. As you've worked out, it involved a substitute king, someone who could be in place of the real king and take the hit of the bad omen. Often the person chosen was a noble, criminal or someone no one much liked. In this instance, we know that it was an individual called Damki and he even got a substitute queen into the bargain. In contrast, the real king retired to a camp or special area in the palace where he was heavily guarded, as was the substitute king. And he was heavily guarded because of the opportunity here for the substitute king to seize the throne by killing him. It's a weird paradox of an individual who had to be a legitimate king for a short time but wasn't allowed the one thing he might want, freedom. The whole ritual was predicated that the substitute king was the guy in charge and therefore anything bad which was earmarked for the king would end up with the substitute one, not the real king. When he ascended to the throne, a list of bad events were read out to him and even written down on tablets which were attached to his royal robes. The substitute king was a scapegoat in temporary luxury and I say temporary because at a determined point after the eclipse, presumably when it was realised the effect of the eclipse had been passed on to him, the substitute king was executed, as was the substitute queen. In keeping with the facade, they were buried in full regal splendour, and the accoutrements of the king, the royal sceptre, the throne and the table were all burnt. With the substitute king now dead, the real king could return safely to rule. The next eclipse belongs more with Homer than it does a palace record. The archaic poets were a lively bunch, and none less so than Archilochus, who lived in the 7th century BCE. He hailed from Paros, an island in the North Aegean, but moved about and lived in Thasos, an island to the south. In one of his poems, Fragment 22, he wrote, Nothing is unexpected, nothing is forsworn, and nothing amazes me now that Father Zeus the Olympian failed the light to make it night at midday. Archilochus referred to an eclipse as happening at midday, and this has caused some heads to be scratched, as the eclipse is associated with this, which occurred on April the 6th, 647 BCE, would have taken before this, around mid-morning. This was a total eclipse, and if he'd witnessed this on either Paros or Thasos, he would most likely have seen a partial eclipse. 
because neither island was in that corridor where the full shadow of the eclipse passed. The date of the eclipse has allowed historians to toy with dating his life. However, I should add that other eclipses have been suggested as being the one in the poem. It's one of the ironies of using eclipses. You can be sure when it wasn't, but not always when it was. My next eclipse was apparently predicted, which has raised some eyebrows and I'll get to that shortly. It's known as the Thales Eclipse after the man who allegedly predicted it and it took place on May the 28th, 584 BCE in the late afternoon. In his account of a battle between the Medes and the Lydians, Herodotus recounted an eclipse which occurred in the late afternoon and caused both sides to stop fighting. Though he doesn't mention exactly where the battle was fought, we can suppose it happened in modern-day Turkey, as that was where the Lydians were based. It's also where an eclipse would have been visible from. Herodotus wrote that Thales had predicted this eclipse, and this was supported by other figures who were his contemporaries, and who were cited by later writers. Writers such as Cicero and Pliny the Elder both name-checked Thales as the man who can, as it were, when predicting eclipses. The only downside to all of this is we don't know how he did it. Thales hailed from Miletus, which was then Ionian Greece, but now would be the western coast of Turkey. He was said to have travelled to Egypt and was interested in mathematics. Putting these two together, it's plausible that he was exposed to the research and astronomical understandings of the Near East and combined these with his own knowledge to make some form of a calculation. However, it's unknown if he did calculate it or if it was afforded to him by his admiring colleagues. Thus far, the reactions to an eclipse seem a bit mixed. You've got the Greeks being a bit annoyed by them in the Iliad, but nothing too serious. And then you've got the Assyrians who definitely do take them seriously. And this attitude that eclipses were something quite formidable are certainly fostered in my next two accounts, where both Spartans and Athenians reacted to them in similar fashion. It's a fair thing to say that Spartans have increased in popularity in recent times, particularly after the film 300, where they're all leaping about with their abs on display, eager to show how brave they were. However, Spartans were scared of some things, and no, I'm not talking just about carbs. Spartans were very superstitious, or perhaps it's better to say that they were worried about doing anything which disrespected the gods. Take the Battle of Marathon in 490 BCE, where messengers sent to them were told that they couldn't join the Athenians until they completed the Carnia festival. And even in battle, the Spartans were keen to show that they were observing the correct religious rituals at any time. Probably the most famous example was the Battle of Plataea, where the Greeks faced off against the Persians. In fairness, the whole Greek army was hamstrung by sacrifices which were interpreted that they could only fight a defensive battle. So they stared across at the Persians for a number of days. Eventually, battle was joined, but even then, the Spartans had to seek the correct sacrificial omens whilst being peppered by Persian arrows as the fight around them continued. Thankfully, these were finally okay, and it allowed the Spartans to get stuck in. And it wasn't just about seeking divine permission to engage in battle. Even crossing borders with an army necessitated this ritual. In Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War, 
there are instances where the Spartan army is good to go, but then the readings from the sacrifice stop them in their tracks. In one instance, it's comically used by the Argives, who knowing that the Spartans have now got to return home and won't come back until after a festival, delayed their own calendar to allow them to continue fighting against the Spartan ally. With all this in mind, we can consider the eclipse of October the 2nd, 480 BCE. It was witnessed by Cleombrotus as a partial eclipse as he made a sacrifice to lead a force against the Persians, who had been defeated at the Battle of Salamis a month or so earlier. Cleombrotus was in charge of the Spartans at the time as a regent, and his force was at the Isthmus of Corinth. The eclipse seemed to have overruled whatever the sacrifices said they could do, as the Spartan force immediately returned home. As mentioned, this account comes to us from Herodotus, but he wasn't the only 5th century historian who was given accounts of eclipses. Thucydides made mention of, of eclipses in his first book of his history of the Peloponnesian War, and I quote, There were earthquakes of unparalleled extent and violence. Eclipses of the sun occurred with a frequency unrecorded in previous history. This sat in a wider comment of how many odd things were going on during the Peloponnesian War. For example, plagues and droughts. And this belongs to something observed in Livy's history. When Hannibal was rampaging around Italy, he was not shy of throwing in some really weird events. It's as if both historians were offering their stance of nature itself being unbalanced by this much war and bloodshed. It's a neat coincidence that an eclipse occurred in the opening year of the war between the Spartans and the Athenians. On August the 3rd, 431 BCE, a partial eclipse was visible from Athens and in the afternoon, which matches Thucydides' description. But the real eclipse, which eclipses all eclipses in the Peloponnesian War, and possibly Greek history, occurred later. On August the 28th, 413 BCE, a lunar eclipse occurred which was visible on Sicily. It's arguably one of the most impacting lunar eclipses of Greek history. It led to the death of two generals and the capture of thousands of Athenian soldiers. The sequence of events which followed was cited as the most disastrous of the entire Peloponnesian War, and for Thucydides, this led to the eventual defeat of Athens. Between 431 BCE and 404 BCE, Sparta and Athens fought a series of engagements, it wasn't a continual war per se, as there were outbreaks of peace. One set-piece event given largesse by Thucydides is the Sicilian expedition. As you can guess, it was an expedition to Sicily by the Athenians. And our main source for this is the historian Thucydides, and he paints a picture of greed and hubris which is punished with the appropriate serving of disaster. Before I go further on this, I should give my podcast on the Sicilian expedition a mention. It's called Wish You Weren't Here, and I mention it because it's worth checking Thucydides' account and holding it to scrutiny. In short, I cover a number of arguments which go to show just how Thucydides handled the event and how he aligned it with his own bias to create something, well, something which is better suited as a tragic narrative more than a balanced historical account. One thing which isn't up for debate is the eclipse. This occurred at the worst possible time, and to the worst possible person, a general called Nicias. How he had ended up involved in all of this is near comical. 
Nicias wasn't interested in going, but ended up going anyway. It's something I discuss in the Sicilian Expedition podcast. When the eclipse happened, the Athenians were in a bad way. A debate amongst the generals had hit an impasse, with a case being made that they needed to retreat to a friendly location on Sicily, where they could regroup. Nicias saw the lunar eclipse and took the advice of the soothsayers. He wouldn't entertain any discussion of what to do for the next 27 days. Thucydides paints a situation where, pun intended, the Athenians were on the wane, and any sort of indecision or delay was highly unadvised. Set against this, the interpretation of the eclipse made bad into worse. It would be unfair to place the blame at the feet of this one event. Nicias had resisted any sort of retreat, thinking that Syracuse would blink first and seek terms, or a pro-Athenian faction would announce themselves. Interestingly, there's no critique of the interpretation of the eclipse. It's just given that it automatically meant nothing could be decided. It's possible that Nicias either took the event and used it to support his policy of staying put, or that Thucydides used it as an event to highlight a fault of Nicias, his lack of clear leadership. But Thucydides doesn't totally scapegoat Nicias. He treats him as the wrong man for the job, and it's really the fault of his employers, namely the Athenian people, through their democracy, and they're the ones to blame. Up until this point, the Athenians had two modes of escape, by sea or by land. The Syracusans seized the initiative and defeated the Athenian navy. This left one option. The retreat of the Athenians was checked and harassed by the Syracusans. Both generals were captured and executed. Few of the original force who'd retreated survived, and those that were suffered an awful fate of being herded into stone quarries which were used as temporary prisons by the Syracusans. Most died of thirst there. Well, enough of the cheery stuff. There was one other eclipse referred to by Thucydides, and I'll need to jump back a decade or so to 424 BCE. It was during this summer that there was a partial eclipse of the sun. Thucydides also reports of an earthquake, and so continues the theme of these natural portents, which are hinting at some wider imbalance. The eclipse is thought to be mentioned in a play by Aristophanes called The Clouds, which was performed in 423 BCE. In it, a character, the leader of the chorus, sings the words, The moon forsook her path, the sun declared that if the villain won, he'd quench his flame, and you elected Cleon just the same. Cleon was an Athenian of some infamy. Simply put, Aristophanes hated him and held him up as the demagogue, the worst type of politician. In the spring of 424 BCE, he was elected as strategos, or general. The comedy works on the premise that the eclipse was a warning or some type, and not, pun intended, a light one. There was a solar eclipse which matches this in time and location. It took place on March 21st, 424 BCE. You may also have noticed that the moon was mentioned as well. Again, a candidate was found, this time a lunar eclipse on the 9th of October, 425 BCE. Aristophanes was presumably hammering the punchline that the heavens were really, really trying to warn the Athenians against electing Cleon. That eclipses could be used in a joke suggests their use as an omen was a known quality and one which was understood by various members of society. 
don't forget that the Athenian audience for a comedy would have had all classes within it, as well as possibly women. Of course, without speculation, that warning could be as vague as, as well, a prophecy from the Oracle at Delphi. Again, I'm not being facetious here, but it's true there wasn't a standard way of understanding what an eclipse meant. There was nothing like the scrutiny the Assyrians could apply to make sense of this celestial event. And our next eclipse is a good example of this. Here's a question for you. You're a soldier, and prior to a battle, an eclipse is seen. What do you make of it? This was the conundrum you would have faced if you were such a soldier in the army of Alexander the Great. In 331 BCE, Alexander fought Darius in the Battle of Gorgamela. The historian Arian wrote of an almost total eclipse of the moon as his men rested as they marched days ahead of the battle. A lunar eclipse did occur on 20th of September 331 BCE, and this is given as the most plausible option. In a way, this is less important. What mattered was how this was understood by Alexander, who was facing a huge challenge. A seer in the army called Aristander unsurprisingly saw this as favourable to Alexander, and he went as far as to make sacrifices in respect of it. What we have here is something a problem Nicias had, and which we'll see again, namely how you control and ensure that the interpretation of the eclipse is to your own advantage. And the importance of this is ramped up in respect of armies. Think on it. You've got thousands of armed and possibly superstitious men, and often another army nearby. Capitulation or a drop in morale could be disastrous. Roll forward to 168 BCE and to a Roman force deep in enemy territory. Rome was busy being Rome, and this time in conflict with Macedonia. The Roman force was tracking down the Macedonians and had camped near Pydna, and the battle was set to happen. As the Roman camp prepared for battle which would take place the following day, a tribune, a military officer, addressed the men, having been given permission to do so. The expectancy was a morale-boosting speech, though coming from a tribune it wasn't exactly top-billing material. The tribune went by the name of Caius Sulpicius Gallus, and he came forward with something I don't think any of the men being addressed would have expected. He told them that during the night there would be a lunar eclipse, and they shouldn't worry about it. The night of the 21st of June 168 BCE gave just that, and the fact that one of their own had predicted it both reassured the Roman soldiers and even gave them a bit of a pep. The opposite was said to have occurred in the Macedonian camp, who, according to Livy, were broken by its appearance and panicked practically all night. Gallus became strongly associated with eclipses. Pliny wrote that he was the first Roman to explain them and wrote a book about them. It might have been that Gallus predicted the eclipse, but a fragment of Polybius omits this in his description. He just says how it panicked the Macedonians in the camp. And this might be a bit of cultural propaganda on the part of the Romans. Shock horror. On the one hand, you have the savvy Romans able to predict an eclipse and thus treat it lightly. On the other side, the Macedonians are running around in their camp terrified by it all. Just on a side note, there's a crater on the moon which has been named after Gallus, and I'll try and find a picture of that for my post. The final lunar eclipse I'm going to discuss continues many of the themes from the one I've just spoken about. There's Romans, panic, and soldiers. And where we can speculate whether the account had a bias in assigning Gallus as an eclipse predictor, in this instance, I'd wager there's a heavy dose of historian bias. 
In 14 CE, Rome had its first major political hurdle. Augustus, the man who'd set the foundation of Rome's imperial period, died. People tend to think of Rome's imperial period, where it moved from being a republic into having an emperor, as set in stone, or, in Augustus' case, set in brick and then in marble. That's just a res geste joke there for anyone. What I mean is that one political structure was dropped in and then just left. The reality was that the imperial period met a sequence of challenges to it, not only in who should be the next emperor, but whether it really should exist and shouldn't we just go back to the good old days of the Republic. Not that many by this point had lived in the Republic and were still alive, or had been alive and experienced any of those good old days it had. The Empire was in its infancy, and though Tiberius assumed power, there were still collision points, and one of these was experienced in the Roman province of Pannonia. This is a province which was at the borders of the Roman Empire. It's roughly where modern-day Hungary is, though it would also cover parts of neighbouring countries as well. In 14 CE, an army at camp there broke into revolt. Our main source is Tacitus, a Roman historian who wrote towards the end of the 1st century CE. According to him, the revolt was more opportunistic than anything else, yet the account of the characters in it revealed this was largely to do with pay and conditions. It's plausible that it was a mix. The soldiers wanted better terms of service, and with the death of Augustus, it was an opportunity to renegotiate these with the new emperor. In response, Tiberius sent his son Drusus to manage and quell the riot. When he arrived, it partially worked out, but things soon turned sour. The soldiers had been placated by his presence, but also a rate that the man sent to negotiate couldn't really do so without the Senate hearing and approving what was being asked. I'll quote Tacitus in what happened next. The night looked like ending in a disastrous criminal outbreak, but this was averted by a stroke of luck. Suddenly, in a clear sky, the light of the moon was seen to decline. The soldiers did not know why this was, and detected an omen in their own situation. The waning moon seemed to provide an analogy to their own efforts. Success would only crown the measures they were adopting if the moon goddess shone brightly again. To produce this result, they made a clattering of brass instruments, and blew brasts of every sort of trumpet. End quote. This didn't cause an immediate return of moonlight, it just got a bit brighter, then a bit dimmer, and then the clouds hid the moon. This caused a complete U-turn, and the soldiers were in confusion. Drusus used this to his advantage. He got word out to the men through officers and got them to ask themselves, well, why are you doing this exactly, and what's the end goal here? How are you going to proceed from here? The next morning, Drusus worked on this confusion further. At an assembly, he gave the line, every parent has. I know, mine did to me. A sort of, if you stop now, we'll forgive you. Well, sort of. And it worked. And the soldiers fell over themselves to prove their loyalty. They offered up the ringleaders the mutiny, and they were duly executed. The lunar eclipse in question occurred on the 27th of September, 14 CE. It's cited as pivotal in preventing a mutiny. But at the same time, it's much a question of how the omen was interpreted. Drusus doesn't seem to have given much thought to it at all, other than seeing it as an opportunity. And the soldiers are painted in hues not dissimilar to the Macedonians, who also spent the night wailing and shouting at the moon. One of the first things I learned when studying Tacitus 
was just how much he disliked Tiberius, and perhaps what we're seeing here is a bit of an example of it. Mutinies by the army occurred in Pannonia and Germany at the same time. Both were serious, but both were used to paint Tiberius as an emperor who wasn't in control. In Pannonia, Tiberius sent his son, who was able to put down the mutiny, albeit with a side salad of good luck from the eclipse. In the case of the other mutiny which happened at Germany, Germanicus is able to put this down more easily and through his own abilities. It's an interesting contrast, and it continues where Germanicus is shown as a more competent and capable general and leader. Hopefully, from what I've talked about, you get an idea for the various ways eclipses interacted with people and civilizations. They were seen as important events and ones which needed further understanding, and this ambiguity seems to be at their very core. They might be a dire warning, but also a mark of distinction. In the case of the latter, consider the association of eclipses with Romulus. Plutarch's Life of Romulus included mention of a Roman called Lucius Tarutius Fermanus. After some extensive calculations, he worked out Romulus's birthday as March the 24th, 771 BCE, and he was so detailed as to have recorded that Romulus was conceived during a total solar eclipse. Yet, according to the NASA records, there were no total solar eclipses visible from Rome or Alba Longa at that time. Perhaps the total eclipse was faked. I'm told this happens. And on that note, I'm going to leave it there. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast as much as I have researching it. As ever, if you can leave a review for my podcast, it will greatly help. I don't have much of a marketing budget, if anything, really, so word of mouth is so important. Feel free to come and say hi to me on Twitter, where I am at Ancient Blogger, and I think I've already mentioned my Ancient Blogger website a few times, but anyway, I've just done so again. I'm on Instagram at Ancient Blogger, and occasionally on Facebook too. You guessed it, Ancient Blogger. Until next time, keep safe and stay well.